0: are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you on school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we're going to have Andrea Gliotti, a journalist for the BBC, who also has worked for Al Jazeera and many other publications. He is going to talk to us about Syria, the Syrian civil war, the Rojave, and all the other factions. Thank you so much for coming. Before we start, can you tell my audience what you do and what do you study in the Middle East?
1: I've been uh, a journalist uh, working in the region, mainly Syria, but also Lebanon, the Emirates, Kurdish regions for the past nine years. Um, and I have a background in Middle East studies. I'm, I. And write Arabic. And I currently work for BBC Monitoring, uh, which is basically a department, at the BBC, that focuses on the media analysis. In my case, analysis of Arabic speaking media.
0: Oh, okay. It's a little bit like FAIR. I do articles for fairness and accuracy in media in America. So I think I understand. So you said you were in Syria for nine years.
1: No, no. Uh, been covering Syria for the past nine years. I spent I've been reporting from inside Syria for at the beginning of the uprising. So that means the first five months. Then I went back in to, That was 2011. And then I went back in 2013. And I've been living in what is now known as the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, or part of it is also called Rojava. in uh, in 2013 and I spent another five months there. So I lived and worked there. And during the, I mean, the remaining years I've been reporting from neighboring countries about Syria, but not exclusively uh, on Syria.
0: Okay. So you started to go to Syria when the protests started in 2010?
1: Yeah, exactly. I was working as a so-called undercover journalists, you know, when you when you basically don't have a permission you just go in and pretend doing something else but then work as a as a freelance journalist. That was the beginning actually of um, it was my early career.
0: Okay. So in two thousand ten, do you remember what city were you in and what protest were you covering?
1: I was in Damascus. I went to Damascus. I was working from Lebanon before, and I moved to Damascus when the uprising started in March.
0: So from what I remember in the timeline, there were protests about various things. And then suddenly there were these armed factions sometime in March. So you're talking about the time when they split or forced into armed factions? No,
1: 2011 was actually the peaceful—well, not totally peaceful, but like that was mainly when the civil movement was really strong and armed activity was really limited.
0: So you're talking about the protest, right? Because uprising can be confusing for people, so—
1: I went back later on to Syria.
0: Tell me what you saw when you were there in Damascus, what were they protesting, and who was protesting
1: I mean back then we've i mean it was an uprising that of course was connected with other uprising that started in the region, as you probably know like in Syria there's an authoritarian regime that has been in power for the past forty years and um, they were protesting basically they were calling for overthrow in the well, in the beginning, actually, they were not calling for the downfall of the, of the regime. There was mainly about reforms and or, uh, an end of corruption, release of political detainees, a set of demands. And then there were also social and economic grievances. There had been droughts in some regions of Syria. So, and a few years before, the government decided decided to cut subsidies to poor rural populations. So some of the part of these populations moved to the suburbs of Damascus and they live in impoverished neighborhoods. They could not rely anymore on subsidized. This so is part of this neoliberal policies that the Assad regime started to put in place. And uh, and basically, even though sometimes the narrative is that one about as if it was a socialist, uh, socialist government, that wasn't the case.
0: No. <laughs> so the protest was on economic conditions, social conditions, income inequality, very much like Occupy Wall Street.
1: Brutal, I mean, of course, Syria is like a brutal torture in prisons, like it's a really authoritarian establishment.
0: Well, same in America. I wish we could say we're different, but we're not. So then things get murky afterwards. So this happened for nearly, it started in 2011, right?
1: Since 2011, yeah. There have been episodes, of course, before that, but not on that massive scale.
0: Okay, what gets murky for me is that suddenly in April, there seems like to be a civil war. What happened on both sides from that timeline? Like, what happened that led to the civil war from the distant protest?
1: The problem in the media narrative, first of all, and because um, the problem is that now, like basically eight years later, you, uh, most media would refer to what happened in. Syria. They would say like, since the uprising started. I'm sorry, the civil war started in 2011. Well, actually, in 2011 there was no civil war. There were protests in the beginning, but this has sort of been removed from from the from the official memory of the, of the conflict. Later on, yeah, definitely, it evolved into what we according to IR terminology that we define as a civil war.
0: So one thing I don't understand, like Western countries have very bad protests, like France, for example. USA had Ferguson and Baltimore uprising. But these protests don't turn into civil wars. Like, what is the path that went from protest to a civil war? Like, can you take us through that journey?
1: yeah the the, the basic difference is i don't think in france and the us they don't shoot randomly on protesters and like detain them for for and put them under brutal torture like this is like people being killed and their uh, or their relatives families this is how they met protesters this is you're talking about a region with really authoritarian energy to a scale that it's not comparable with the western countries um it's a different kind of repression. So I think if you have to protect, like demonstrate, you have you go out and demonstrate, and <laughs> you you're faced with brutal violence because that that's the response. Like whether it's Syria, whether it's Egypt, or uh, to a to a certain extent also, but Turkey is different. But uh, it's it's a different case. But anyway, that the, the response would be you you take up weapons. I mean that, that that's what lead to a civil war. Uh, at the same time, I'm not going to deny that of course there were. Foreign powers that were interested in uh, uh, basically arming the rebels, arming the opposition, and that led to a civil war. As, as so, that was some of the Gulf countries, Turkey. So some of these regional powers, um, the U.S. to a lesser extent, actually, to be honest, like Turkey was much more active in uh, supporting the armed opposition. Some of these regional powers, of course, had an interest in toppling um, Assad government. And that led to, of course, to a civil war, to a fully-fledged armed conflict.
0: (laughs) So Turkey first started with the armed groups and then came the Gulf countries in the U.S. And so were these armed groups ever united or did all of them have a different agenda?
1: No, definitely the second option. Yeah. Uh, When I went to Turkey in 2012, of course, many of these groups were base, I mean, their operational base was Turkey, and they have different agendas. Some of them were uh, more radical when it comes to ideology, and him I'm talking about Islamist ideology. Some of them had, they wanted to topple the government, the regime, but they didn't want necessarily to establish an Islamic state. They were more liberal, I would say. I don't like to use the term secular, but secular, to be honest, it's something I don't think that it was uh, as an ideology this armed faction ever used the term secular even though that was part of the narrative in western media because they had to sort of um, defend themselves against claims that these were all you know islamist or, so the narrative in western media uh, you have this term that was also the one used by the u.s administration that those were moderate rebels you know? <laughs> The the, the the definition of moderate of course it's all up to you I mean it's it's really subjective so, so I would say that some of them were were more liberal some of them were more Islamist or Islamist and some of them were hardliners it, depends. it was really diverse but that as any uprising I mean it's hard to have like unified ideological front I mean to be honest all people agreeing on what they want after they they overthrow government.
0: But did they agree to, like, at least during the fight, to unify as one faction? Or was it still many different factions fighting on many different goals and strategies?
1: More unified in uh, in 2012, there was a so-called Free Syrian Army. But unified is, is, is probably were overestimating. Like it was more of a term that was used. The Frisian Army was the term that was used to refer to basically the armed opposition. But it was not cohesive military structure with the leadership. Although the leadership was based in Turkey, to be honest, there were so many factions and 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 it was it was not that disciplined. And so the Frisian army was the term that was used in the beginning by the protesters himself, but and they used this term to refer to those who took up weapons to defend the protesters but then this term lost sort of significance because instead of being the original revolutionary army whatever, it started to be used to refer to any sort of armed faction that was siding with the with the opposition and to be honest and now turkey in the current offensive on on kurdish majority territories in northern syria is still using the term pre-syrian army but that has little to do with what was the Christian army in the beginning of that crisis.
0: Okay, just curious, with regards to the majority of these armies, were they all Sunni armies or were there any Shia, Christian or any other armies that was opposed to Assad?
1: Is the population of still it's a demographic issue, the population of Bia is overwhelming, the majority is Sunni, so if you have an uprising as well, one of the reasons is that if you have an uprising and lots of people taking the street, the majority will be Sunni anyway unlike other countries in the region, but other than that there's a historical, the historically the government itself has been portraying himself, itself across decades as a protector of uh, minorities, whether they're, what particularly like religious minorities. So it's 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 a, it's a common, to be honest, it's a, it's something common among like uh, so-called supposedly uh, secular um, dictatorships that usually um, in the region would would use this rhetoric to say that uh, use that used to they would say that they are shielding that they're protecting minorities from a majority of Sunni radicals or whatever the majority of, uh, of of the population. But, of course, it's instrumental because, yeah, there are, of course, some radicals, but at the same time, it's, it's you're telling the Christian or another minority that in order for him or her to survive, she has to or he has to support a dictatorship. So, it, of course, it's a power dynamics and uh, it has been used uh, many times. So, yet there were, of course, Christians and, uh, and other... Uh, communities taking part, I would say, more in the in the peaceful uprising rather than the, the military factions, to be honest, because the weapons and the, man, and the money were coming from certain countries with certain ideology that it's mainly Sunni, if you're talking about certain Gulf countries such as Qatar or Turkey, where there is this dominant Sunni Islamist ideology. So, of course, they were not giving weapons to Liberal factions. they were giving weapons to to Islamist faction. This is part of the part of the reasons.
0: Okay, so one or some of these factions, I guess, located in northern Syria, the YPG, like
1: uh, jump in on that because that's yeah YPG the YPG that's the YPG. Uh, it's not part of these factions.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, so it's just a PKK.
1: Yeah, it's it's linked so the the point is that those are like factions like basically um, Kurdish majority factions in the beginning they were overwhelmingly Kurdish and they started recruiting other communities but these never i mean this faction never explicitly sided with the uprising and to a certain extent it has always been what well, it has been opposed to the uprising and it had a, a different agenda so they pursue their own uprising, that uh, there was a sort of uh, a revolution in, in those areas, but it's a different one in terms, insofar as it was led by a political force, by a really, in this sense, um, in this case, there was an ideology, there's a quite unified ideology, which is linked with the, the history of the PKK. And in that case, it's a secular leftist ideology. And they, they, they sort of led, this revolution but some would argue that this is more of a top-down revolution because it, it, it's basically a party or a leading the, uh, rather than a, a grassroots but there are some grassroots components to be honest but it's quite different from what happened in the rest of syria where there was no no party leading what happened it was really like people taking to the streets and, and uh-huh. in the Kurdish regions was quite different because it was a dominant political force that led what, some solutions, some wrong, but definitely a radical social change.
0: Okay, so the Rajavi area didn't partake in too many protests, but they've also had been trying to resist years ago, so they had a better quasi-organizational structure? Is that what you're trying to say?
1: Yeah, but they did. The fact is that there, you originally, they did take part. Those these regions, they take, they took part in the process because historically they had been marginalized as well by the government. You look at Kurds; they have been discriminated and they have been there was cultural repression. Most of them are dissidents, so like they were are really because of the marginalization of this area. So in the beginning, they took part in the process, but then this political force, this movement. Which is basically what is called as what is known as the Union Democratic Party or PAPD. And then, when you talk about all these armed, this, uh, these armed factions, they were all initiated by this party, even though, like, it allied with other uh, political military forces. And this party or this, this political movement sort of started its own revolution. That's ah, that's, that's-
0: uh, okay. So they had a different goal than every other group, and. They started their own revolution to further.
1: Yeah, the Kurdish. Uh, more of a Kurdish agenda, although it's phrased as an internationalist one. But the party, it's, uh, the history of the party, of course, is a is Kurdish movement.
0: So the people in Rojava, um, Westerners call them Syrian Kurds. If you're a Syrian Kurd, what is it you call yourself in your language?
1: That's one issue first of all, westerners are quite uh, i mean it's, many of them quite inaccurate because the region is a mixed it's, the population is mixed, so there are arabs, there are uh, Syriac christian Assyrians, and Kurds so yeah, in some of these areas, the Kurds are the majority uh, if you ask me how would they refer to themselves well it depends to be honest on uh, yeah of course as a Kurd, and I would say that over the past year of the i mean since the conflict started of course the sort of the ethnic identity has been has been emphasized more and more because of the conflict because of the disillusion with the opposition as well which was the item the opposition of course the majority of them are arabs
0: i'm sorry uh, by opposition you mean the armed opposition to the assad government right
1: fighting against assad because the issue here with the, when you talk about orjava is that mainly he developed as an independent as an autonomous structure that was rarely opposed to the government the central government and that was why the, the, the Syrian government took advantage of it well and what you see now of course the fact that they have a deal and,
0: and... wait wait slow down we don't want to con- this is so confusing to most americans so we want to kind of stay chronological so then around what year did the syrian Kurdish militancy groups started to deploy their military during the conflict. Two
1: thousand and twelve is the is, is basically when they is Kurdish the, how could, what you refer to the uh, Peshmerga. No, no, no. That's Iraq. That's nothing to do with.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah.
1: That's uh, yeah. I know uh, that that usually they refer to Peshmerga, but to be honest, that. That's on the Iraq.
0: What what do you call the Syrian Kurds then?
1: But Peshmerga is a military term. It's not for a people. It's just the army of Iraqi Kurdistan.
0: I see now. Okay, okay. So what is the Syrian Kurdish army called?
1: Well, the fact is that the army that is linked with this faction, uh, with this Kurdish faction I mentioned before, the Union, the Democratic Union Party is called the YPG, or YPG, in Kurdish, uh, in and uh, they, of course, then they recruited from people with different political backgrounds, not only from the party, but it was mainly started as, uh, as sort of the party's armed wing, um, so that's the…
0: What year did the YPG begin, and what year did the Democratic Union Party begin?
1: Democratic Party Union started in 2003 as the Syrian branch of the PKK, so Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is the reason why now you have, uh, you know, Erdogan using this as a,
0: yeah, 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 I I understand
1: uh, on on these areas because he's basically saying that this is the PKK and
0: the, yeah, this PKK is the same as the Turkish one. Yeah, yeah I, I totally understand. So around 2013 is when PYD's army, PKK, started fighting, right?
1: 2000 and, no, that's 2003 is when they, they found the, I mean, they had three of resistance of, uh, yeah, of resistance to the, the, to both the Turkish, and it is quite complex, because I need to go back in history, and the, the issue was that this party, like the PKK, before the Syrian branch was, was established, that was a party that the Syrian government used against Turkey. So they had, so Abdullah Ocalan, the historical leader of the PKK, was based in Damascus. So Syria was using the PKK against Turkey, way before all of this conflict. And so the PKK has a history that is, it's, it has been for quite a long time, has been benefiting from this relationship with the Syrian government. Then things changed. There was the Adana Agreement, late 90s, and the Syrian government and the Turkish government basically signed this agreement. And the Syrians told the Syrians told Erdogan, you have to leave, and end the end of this. Uh, otherwise, uh, Turkey back then was threatening to wage war. on Syria.
0: Wait, who had to? Oklan Ocal- is the head of the Democratic Union Party, right?
1: PKK. PKK is sort of the mother, the the, the party <laughs> that is behind all. Well, the PAD was just the Syrian branch. PKK was <laughs> there from the the 80s. Basically. Okay,
0: so you just said somebody had to leave, and I uh, we couldn't. I couldn't hear that name.
1: Ocalan, so the, the leader of the PKK, the historical leader, which is jailed in, uh, in
0: Turkey. Yep. Um, okay. I, I know who he is. I just pronounced his name wrong. And he also wrote a book in prison. Okay. This is actually very helpful. So please continue to tell us what happened next.
1: So what happened next was that he was basically expelled from Syria. So he, we we're talking about Turkey's Kurdistan Workers Party. So this is the main party, which is and he, the leader was expelled, then he was arrested by, by Turkey, and then he ended up in prison. So the relationship between, at that time, of course, the Syrian government had to cra- start crack down, cracking down on uh, on this party. Uh, so because he was in good relationship with Turkey, but he started cracking down on PKK, so basically Kurdish militants that are affiliated with this party inside Syria, which is a fun, something that didn't happen before, because before he was using the PKK against Turkey. So this relationship, like, it's not a stable one. So when people would, uh, so it's part of the position would say, "Oh, the PKK is allied with the, with the Syrian regime." This is also inaccurate because it depends on the historical period. They did under underwent. I mean, they did. They were under political repression, and many of their their activists and fighters were arrested in Syria after, or Abdullah Öcalan, historically, they was expelled from the country, and after. Uh, Turkey and Syria reproached and this is something that could happen now so the issue that we got to the Syrian uprising in 2011 at that moment the Syrian government had an interest of course in not waging war on Kurdish majority uh, areas and on on not waging war against the PKK or Pemade or like basically this, this galaxy of parties that are affiliated with the PKK why? Because he knew that Turkey would have supported opposition. And of course, Turkey had issues with the, with the PKK. So why? It's, a, it's a, the old issue of like, you're my, you know, my, uh, your enemy is my friend. So at that, that time, the Syrian government had no interest at all in waging war on the Kurds. Because he knew that some of the Kurds, especially those who were affiliated with the PKK or PAYADES, they uh, they, 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 had, they, were not in good uh, relation. I mean, they, they had an interest against Turkey. So he played, he knew he had Kurds against him, but he also had opposition. And so he, the, the government chose to shell and focus to bombard opposition areas. And use sort of take advantage from the fact that the Kurds, yeah, they can have some autonomy. And I probably deal with that later on.
0: So in the beginning, I guess around two thousand eleven, the government of Syria and the Kurdish groups did come to an agreement for increased autonomy.
1: Uh, not a formal agreement, but basically the the Syrian army, the Syrian army withdrew from uh, from the regions that are now known as Rojava. Well, they were known as such even before, but that's uh, that's a, a Kurdish term. So politically, that that the autonomous administration came into effect because the Syrian government withdrew from there. There were some sporadic clashes, but to be honest, it, it was nothing compared with what happened in the rest of Syria, where there was devastation. I mean, bombardments. And, so they basically handed over the, the territories. That was the pay. and actually, some of the in some areas, the Syrian uh, government managed to maintain its security apparatus and some units of the army in spite of Rojava and in spite of the autonomous administration. So that tells you that there was a sort of coexistence. Uh, So they allowed, well, they allowed, it was also the fact that you 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 cannot wage war on multiple fronts at the same time. Uh, So they allowed this to happen to a certain extent. Uh, The Kurdish movement, in a sense, the PKK or the Democratic Union Party, basically started their own their, their own agenda. So they, they started establishing their institutions. Uh, there were lots of activists that were involved, of course, in the Rojava revolution and mm-hmm. all sorts of activists who were-
0: uh, Wait, you say the Rojava revolution, what is that? When did that happen? This timeline is getting a little bit confusing for me.
1: So <laughs> yeah, the fact when I say Rojava revolution is basically when they started establishing this autonomous region that's what i mean but the fact is that of course you're establishing a new political entity in an area which is not anymore under government control even though there are some some army units still located in there so it's still a form of revolution so if you uh, you start changing the laws you you, uh, you establish all these grassroots structures where you have communes and so it's, it's a sort of like different councils that run that 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 basically run neighborhoods, then uh, towns, like a sort of a, a, a bottom-up approach in administrative matters. Uh, so this is yeah, a form of revolution in itself. Right? It's say different from what happened in the rest of Syria, just because, as I mentioned before, there was a one political force that was leading this revolution. So if you want, yeah, there are uh, grassroots, uh, there was grassroots work, but at the same time, there was a top-down approach. There was a party telling you, this is what, Ojalan wrote in his book, and we have to do this. So it, it's quite different from... In the rest of Syria, to be honest, that, that was one of the reasons why the uprising was so... Ideologically, was so scattered or not homogeneous because people, yeah, took to the streets, but they were... Yeah, they wanted a democratic state, but to be honest, uh, there was no clear vision of what would come after him. In the case of Rojava, yeah, they had a clear vision. The party had a clear vision, and, and that's what they... That's what happened. Um, I should mention that there were like similar grassroots activists, even in the rest of Syria. There were, there were people establishing local councils and so on. Uh, the, the problem there was that there some, some of the armed factions started to have more influence than civil actors. So the armed factions would just take control of the councils. And yeah, there had been a constant struggle between civil activists and armed factions. In Rojava, it's quite different because this, the activists, the civil activists, as long as they were aligned with the vision of the military factions, which I, which is still no, the military faction that are linked with the PKK, so with the with the main Kurdish party in Syria is called the PYD. As long as they were the civil activists were aligned with this with this military the vision of this military faction, they were allowed to operate and they had a vision. Uh, others who did not agree with the, with the well, didn't share the same vision, the same ideology well, they were marginalized if not um, arrested, or, or I wouldn't compare what happened in terms of repression, of course, rojava Java is not comparable to, you know, the Syrian government or areas that were administered by radicals.
0: Thanks for listening. Our checks from Erdogan and MBS both bounced this month, and the CIA dropped their subscription months ago. So we're relying on you to go to historically.substack.com and get on that subscribe button. You can get all of our newsletters and all of our past podcasts. Please
1: do it for us.
0: So in your article that like led me to you, um, you talked about Omar Aziz. Who is he?
1: That's what I was referring to, to grassroots activists. That's what I meant. Because we know about Rojava, of course, because it's, popular narrative in the among the, I mean, especially in the western left no oh god yes two of us know about uh, some of these less less known figures that were active elsewhere in Syria and they actually did something similar in terms of the uh, in terms of the envisaging like or sort of articulating a political theory that was based on uh, grassroots lo- local governance so local councils uh, that will that will administer Areas that are outside of government control, and that they would rely, of course, on people mutual aid, sort of like the anarchist communes, like we you know back in, the, in Paris in the 19th century. And this idea was there. Omar Aziz, basically, he wrote. He was an activist. He was not an activist before the revolution. Actually, he was someone who was living in uh, in, in Saudi Arabia as an expatriate Syrian, and came back uh, to you know, when the pricing started and started to. He, had, he was an intellectual. He had read lots of books, uh, among them, uh, Negri's, uh, Tony Negri's books. And I mean, he started to... Uh, when, what we know about him is, is for what his friends left from some, some writings that he posted on Facebook. And they were basically sort of uh, notes on the meaning of local councils. So when local councils were established in areas that were outside of government control, so basically administered by the opposition... He was one of the few voices that articulated as, I mean, in a, in a way that we are familiar with, so as, as an intellectual, as a political intellectual that is influenced or influenced also by Western leftist political thought would do. So he was one of the few voices that wrote down what is the meaning of a local council, what are the challenges. And one of the main uh, concepts that he articulated was the difference between the time, uh, the time of uh, power, what he refers to as the time of power and the time of revolution. This is something that has been explored even elsewhere in, uh, in uh, Chiapas with the Zapatistas. It's the issue that you're basically, uh, when you start a revolution, um, you have to become, the, the challenge is that not being reliant on the government. So, if, for example, if you have uh, a government job, like how are you going to cope with that? How are you going to cut that, that bond with the government? So how are you going to separate, the, make the time of the revolution Self-reliant, without having people who still need to rely on government service provision, for example. This is a crucial concept. It's something that even Ojalan discussed in in, uh, in the case of Rojava. So there are similarities. That's that's one. That's what I was trying to say in that article. And that what is a pity is that, that all the agendas, polarization, whether it's political, ethnic, and so on, that led to these different. Parts of Syria, so the one the opposition held Syria and Rojava not talking, uh, I mean being at odds basically, not uh, not being in uh, in communication and basically for uh, many years actually clashing uh, militarily. Um, And this is what happening was happening also today because uh, you know that some of the armed opposition armed factions are just sided with Turkey and they're waging war on other Syrians. So. Uh, so in this case, the Syrian Kurds. So there are a set of reasons why this happened, but it's, uh, of course, it's a pity because uh, there were uh, shared grounds for political, I mean, something in common was there in terms of local governance in uh, a stateless context.
0: So in the Western press, they show an incredibly rosy glow of Rojave. What is the reality on the ground?
1: Uh, yeah, of course. There's, there's um, yeah, there is a, a romanticization, a romanticization of the, of the of the reality on the ground, and this is mainly about Western activists, including those who travel, there, projecting their values and their ideas on the on the <laughs> So the fact is that what they want to see, you no, know, and
0: ah, okay.
1: So, so, so to a certain extent, it we are told that this is just a democratic experience. So the narrative is just the state. The, if they just regurgitate the narrative of the ruling authorities, so of course, it's not critical. Uh, I mean, we, we are critical, I suppose, with critical minds. We're just saying that this is a, a democracy in times of war. I and mean, there is no such a thing as an absolute democracy in times of war. <laughs> Absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> it's the detainees and all that and this is happening yeah yeah of course there are communes they have allied with other political forces there are room for co- cooperation as well there is been a, um, a women empowerment movement true but at the same time we, we see of course there the the main sort of fetishized image is that of the the woman uh the, the Kurdish woman warrior no which is, is of course it's a it's a fair argument to say that you know women should should serve as men in in the armed forces, and it's part of, 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 of could be part of, of, of gender equality. But at the same time, if you look at, for example, the textbooks, uh, even in the in, in the administration, and where what they teach in school, not all of that is uh, is it's, it's based on feminism, and you know it's it's, it's rooted. I mean, there's still plenty of uh, I mean, there's still plenty of, I mean, there's room for progress again. I mean, it, it's not. A, of course it's not perfect and and that's the 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 main problem also with the western narrative sometimes on rojava is that it becomes a sort of they're sort of singling out the Kurds as if they don't belong to they're not part of the social fabric so it's like solidarity only with the Kurds. now so this is when it comes to selective solidarity of course it's problematic whether it's only with Arabs or whether it's only with Kurds. So why uh, was the point of ignoring people rising up against authoritarian structures in one country, but then being uh, showing solidarity with uh, with people and in this case, we're talking about regions, but still the, the case is the same issue. Yeah, this is what I think sometimes problematic in addition to, of course, the issue that you have when you travel to a region when you don't speak any of the local languages and you're there, and uh, many of, of course, I understand what what drives some people to travel there, whether it's to fight or to to serve as a volunteer. This is totally uh, legitimate, and th- there are some principles and motivations behind it. Uh, but uh, at the same time, when you go there, you are you're sort of like uh, it's an organized tour, no? Like you go there with certain political authorities and you, you they show you what they want in the end okay people say yeah i've been allowed to travel around fine but it, it's a different To be honest just i'm saying this out of personal experience because of course i had interviews with officials and all of that but when i, was, I went there i was also exposed to, to the to the wider political spectrum of views and even those who are not affiliated with the, the authorities or or with the, with the armed factions that are created with the authorities. Sometimes when you hear these Western narratives, they basically went there and they only spoke with the armed factions, as the armed factions or political factions that are loyal to the Rojava administration. So I think, yeah, this is, is kind of a limit.
0: So I know in one of your articles, you spoke to some civilians on the ground who were not fighting on it. They were ethnically... Kurdish, but they weren't fighting and they had strong criticisms of the administration. Can you talk about a little bit about it?
1: If you want to, I mean, if you, it's about Kurdish criticism of that. Yeah, of course there is, because the, the Kurds are divided themselves. They have different parties. There's not only the ruling parties, there are other parties that are opposed to the to what's going on. And there are people who are just not affiliated with parties that have their critical minds and they're they're different. I mean, this is also part of what is sometimes problematic about this western narrative is that it's just the Kurds as if they are unified and they just agree on anything they have one cause and and, uh, and it's not the case and of course as now all communities they're quite divided and politically that they don't agree on many things I mean you have like you know we didn't mention that but it's no Iraqi Kurdish parties who are, who are like in in good terms with uh, with Erdogan's Turkey until a few months ago. So I mean, for example, and, and even inside Rojava, you no, know, it, itself, there are different, different political views. And, and sometimes I think what is lost there is sometimes it's the civil, the civic dimension. If you end up regurgitating just the parties, I mean, what, what's basically what's available on a part on parties outlets. Um, I don't think that that's so, and uh, that's not uh, independent thinking. You know?
0: if Rojava is truly a leftist movement why would the u.s government support them in any fashion
1: well i think in that case it was i mean ideology comes secondary to a certain extent when it comes to like you they were trying to fix the mess that partially they contributed to creating in the region no especially if you take in consideration that you know that the islamic the so-called islamic state or isis whatever you want to call it it's product of Iraq and what has been done in Iraq as well, and it was a product of the Iraqi resistance itself to U.S. occupation, although it went, you know, it became like something with a global ambition and uh, it became a global jihadist movement and so on. Uh, so they were trying to fix what, what they did in, uh, in, in Iraq and to a, to a lesser extent also in, in Syria. So, yeah, I don't think that the, the ideology of, uh, of the PKK or activists there mattered that much in that case uh, when it comes because the priority was like sort of uh, counter so-called counterterrorism or annihilating ISIS. And that's it, which is a really short sighted approach, because, of course, ISIS is coming back like the social the roots of that. Uh, I mean, it hasn't been eradicated anyway as a social. No, no, no. It hasn't just been defeated military. Uh, but anyway, when you talk about the leftist, it's sort of like this is the leftist, uh, well, Israel itself, like there right, are Israeli activists now taking the streets and supporting Rajava. So, like many, and that that's part of the issue that, you know, it's a sort of an ethnic solidarity with anything which is not basic. <laughs> that's why they do it, no?
0: Ah, okay. A lot of the Israeli—it's an anti-Arab bigotry that kind of oddly leads to solidarity.
1: Sure, even among the, the, the some Kurds that would empathize with Israel for the same reason. But what I wanted to say is like there are different layers in Rojava as well. Yeah, one thing is like yeah, the anarchist or leftist grassroots activists or some even of the—I would say even some of the the PKK fighters are have this ideology. You know, like they, they when you speak with them, you can tell that they—they they, you know—they read those books and like. They want to have that. They have this idea of a social lab that they they're contributing to, but uh, at the same time, the the Rajab administration was really pragmatic when it was dealing with the Americans. They set up ministries. You're not supposed to have ministries in a grassroots anarchist (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. administration or ministries, and basically, it, it was started functioning as a government like basically as any other government in in the world like in and as an interface you'll have the ministry of uh, of uh, foreign relations like our supporters will tell you that the grassroots structure was still there but they they know themselves and this is also in the their literature if you if you if you read like some of the books that are extremely supportive of of the rojava experiment they will uh, admit still that the establishment of ministry was not in line with like the the grassroots ideology or whatever the the anarchist credentials of this. So They were really pragmatic as any other political force in the war zone. So I think the Americans in the end, they were, they knew that they were dealing with like some, yeah, basically ministers and like a, a state. That's how the America, I think that's how the U.S. looked at it. They didn't look at it as, wow, that's radical anarchist threats to the, to the, to the, to the uh, yeah, the, uh, the regional order or the regional city, the regional security.
0: So if there's somebody like me, like, how, how do I find the voices of the ordinary citizen in Rojava to hear what they think, as opposed to what the leadership thinks? Is it possible? Or?
1: Yeah, of course, they yeah. get to so, certain and there are language barriers. But the same, I think there are many also on social media, there are many of uh, many, yeah, commentators, including Kurdish commentators, with different views on that. I mean, it's it's not. I wouldn't say. I mean, to be honest, it's quite diverse as a political spectrum. Yeah, if we only read like what, what the Western left is telling us about yeah, it's just one voice more or less.
0: Oh, oh yeah, I absolutely think no one should listen to Western. Like you have to listen to the locals.
1: Yeah. yeah so and some of the locals of course will endorse that vision i not. i'm not denying that, but uh, it's, it's more complex it's more complex now as anywhere you, you the, the issues that you have to it's quite sometimes you have to, to be aware of uh, even those who are critical sometimes you know they're critical because they're affiliated with the iraqi Kurdish party that it's even more conservative than 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 the, the pq it's more well, it's actually way more conservative than uh, the PKK, for example, so uh, maybe that uh, you have an activist who is criticizing the authorities in Rojava, but then he's supportive of another party in Iraqi Kurdistan that, that I mean, it has been in power for the past now thirty years, and it's not anymore. It's not more progressive. Well, they don't claim to be progressive anyway. In that case, the Western left wouldn't empathize anyway. But
0: I agree exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, what I think is like. Often, Americans should take more effort, learn these languages, understand more cultures because you don't want your only narrative on foreign policy to be some guy with a podcast and c n n. You know what I mean? Yeah <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Um, what pieces are you working on next?
1: Uh, thesis uh,
0: do you have an article coming up?
1: No, I still have that movie. I'm a journalist, so no, no thesis. I, uh, yeah, left uh, university like 10 years ago. No, but I, I'm, I'm actually writing an article, which is an academic article. We'll see if it ever gets published. I don't generally write that, that this kind of stuff, because I'm, I'm a journalist. But this is actually about some of the issues that we discussed. It's basically a comparison between local govern, grassroots, local governance structures. In Rojava and opposition-held territories. So this is about this lack of communication, no? but this is what something I'm uh, the lack of communication or the this hostility. Whereas it's it's interesting to shed light on on, on what what's common actually in spite of the war. That like there were uh, there were things in common. This is something I've been working on. But most of my my, my yeah my daily job is about yeah uh, the ongoing events and war and and. Yeah, current affairs, which is probably less fascinating than all of it.
0: Thank you so much. We appreciate this a lot because you have been the most clear and you've given a lot of us like a timeline to think about because otherwise there's too many parties. It's too, there's just too much there for us to clear, uh, to understand who's who. So I really appreciate your history lesson and the timeline. And also understanding who are all the factions involved. This was very helpful. Thank you.
1: Thanks a lot. For, um, we'll be in touch. Thanks a lot.
0: Absolutely. And I'd love to have you back anytime. So after you write your article, please email it to me because I'd love to have you back.
1: Okay, great. Thanks. Have a good day.
0: Music for this show is done by RecTech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify, W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.